Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, April 14th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, is it a food allergy or food sensitivity? From CNBC. And bacteria from meat linked to nearly half a million UTIs in the U.S. each year. From health.com. Plus, fewer doctors are choosing emergency medicine. From Scientific American. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Is it a food allergy or food sensitivity? This info can help you tell the difference. By Renee Ankiu from health.com. If you have a food allergy, you're likely aware of it by now. Many people are allergic to nuts and shellfish and were either born with the allergy or developed it with age. Despite how careful you might be with the foods you're allergic to, it is possible that you're still consuming foods every day that your body is sensitive to in other ways. Food allergies are typically easy to detect because your body usually reacts immediately, and that reaction can be so severe that it requires medical attention, says Jill Hart, a biochemist and scientific director at York Test. On the flip side, food sensitivities are very different and take longer to generate, says Hart. So you can eat something maybe on a Saturday, and it might not be until Tuesday that you even get a reaction, she says. Food sensitivities are also known as food intolerances, and reactions tend to be long-term and chronic, she adds. They can present as a variety of symptoms, including irritable bowel syndrome and migraines, and most people react to five or six foods based on York test results, Hart notes. Is it a food allergy or a food sensitivity? Here's a comparison of food allergies and food sensitivities to help distinguish the major differences between the two. Food allergy or food sensitivity. Allergies usually create immediate reactions, can be life-threatening, typically require medical intervention. Symptoms may include tingling in the mouth, vomiting, dizziness, sneezing, itchy skin, and swelling. Sensitivities. Reactions often take longer to manifest than allergic reactions. Not life-threatening. Symptoms may include irritable bowel syndrome, digestive problems, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, migraines, and headaches. I took a food sensitivity test that picked up on something I eat weekly. As someone who's allergic to pineapples, I've often wondered if there are other foods I should avoid. So I recently took a food sensitivity test by York Test. The process involved pricking my finger and shipping my blood sample off to be tested in a lab. The results group food sensitivities into three categories— high reactivity, borderline, normal reactivity. Foods with a high reactivity label indicate clear food sensitivities. My body isn't a big fan of eggs. I typically eat a high-protein plant-based diet. My meals often include either beans, peanut butter, or pasta. If I do eat animal-based foods, it's usually fish, shrimp, and eggs. I eat eggs twice a week, sometimes more, to make sure I'm getting enough protein. 
Before taking the test, I was already pretty aware of how my body reacts to eggs. I often experience symptoms of IBS and other digestive issues. When I got the results of my test, I wasn't entirely surprised to learn I have a sensitivity to eggs, but seeing it on paper made it harder to ignore. Hart believes I can benefit from removing eggs from my diet, but that isn't as crucial as the steps I take to avoid the foods I'm allergic to. All we're doing is giving you a starting point for an elimination diet. We're not diagnosing anything or treating anything, says Hart. We're just saying if you wanted to try and remove some foods from your diet, we suggest you start with these particular foods, she says. Up next, bacteria from meat may cause nearly half a million UTIs in the U.S. every year. By Caitlin Sullivan from Health.com. Researchers have linked more than half a million UTIs each year to strains of E. coli found in meat products in the United States. The strains of E. coli discovered were predominantly in raw chicken and turkey products. Experts recommend thorough hand washing and prioritized gut health to help individuals counteract UTI risk. Researchers have linked more than half a million urinary tract infections, or UTIs, a year to strains of E. coli found in meat sold at grocery stores in the United States. The portion of total UTI cases this accounts for is still small, about 8%, but the finding sheds light on a potentially overlooked source of infections. The most important thing is to make sure that you are very aware of washing your hands and the surfaces in your kitchen when you bring these products into your house, said the new study's co-author, Lance B. Price, Ph.D., a professor of environmental and occupational health and co-director of the Antibiotic Resistance Action Center at the George Washington University's Milken School of Public Health in Washington, D.C. Cross-contamination and increased UTI risk. The Food and Drug Administration only seriously monitors two strains of E. coli in meat, both of which cause gastrointestinal illness. But the new study suggests raw meat sold in the U.S. may harbor other potentially important strains of E. coli. The researchers used data collected over a year in nine grocery stores in Flagstaff, Arizona. Cultures of microorganisms found in all available brands of raw chicken, turkey, and pork were taken from every store every two weeks. Dr. Price and his team found genetic similarities between E. coli found in meat, mostly poultry, and E. coli that causes some UTIs in humans. They estimated that around 8% of UTI cases in the U.S. appear to be traced back to foodborne zoonotic strains, meaning pathogens that can pass from animals to humans, of E. coli found predominantly in raw chicken and turkey. They included strains that had at least an 80% probability of passing from animals to humans and causing UTIs. According to Dr. Price, these strains of E. coli won't survive being cooked, so eating fully cooked meat that hasn't come into contact with any surfaces contaminated with raw meat should not cause UTIs. Instead, it's an issue of people handling raw meat and not properly cleaning their hands and other surfaces after, or improperly disposing of packaging that held raw meat. 
Just like with everything, it's important to wash your hands before and after cooking and make sure the surfaces are clean and, of course, understand that eating raw meat carries with it risks, said Nisreen Nakib, M.D., an associate professor of urology at the University of Minnesota Medical School and director of the Pelvic Floor Program, who was not involved in the new study. Being mindful in the kitchen can drastically reduce your risk of spreading E. coli. While your hands are contaminated, you need to think about how you're going to pump that soap, turn on that faucet, without contaminating it, noted Dr. Price. When you are preparing ground products, it's even riskier, because one of the things we do with ground products is we make patties, which means we handle them a lot, he said. The association between E. coli found in raw meat and UTIs is not novel. A 2012 study by Canadian researchers published in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention journal Emerging Infectious Diseases pulled from previous research that found strains of UTI-causing E. coli in poultry. In the follow-up study, they found that pork and beef were far less likely to contain UTI-causing bacteria than turkey and chicken. Dr. Nakib also noted that if it's true that E. coli for meat is causing some UTIs, it is not the only or the most common way people get these infections. There are so many other causes, like not emptying the bladder and having stains of urine, thus allowing bacteria to overgrow. There could be contamination for the backside if people wipe incorrectly or have bowel issues, she explained. People also commonly get UTIs from having sex. Additionally, Dr. Nakib noted that some people are more susceptible to UTIs. These include people with vaginas, those who are immunocompromised, as well as diabetics who have poor blood sugar control. Being postmenopausal can also put people at higher risk for UTIs because menopause causes a drop in estrogen, which decreases the protective good bacteria in the vagina that can fight off infection-causing bacteria. Types of E. coli and the impact of bacteria. Dr. Price also emphasized that E. coli is a unique type of bacteria that surrounds us all the time. Although different strains are all housed under the same umbrella, E. coli strains are incredibly diverse. There are lots of E. coli that are just hanging out in our gut, and they don't have a lot of potential to cause disease, he said. Some can cause diarrhea, and even in that group, there are lots of different methods by which they cause diarrhea, he said. It's another group entirely that causes UTIs. The ones, E. coli, that cause UTIs are a fairly diverse group that has special features. They can cloak themselves from the immune system, they can hold on to cells in the urethra, even under force, such as urination, Dr. Price said. E. coli is estimated to cause more than 75% of UTIs. Although the new study found that contamination from E. coli found in some meat could be a factor, by far the biggest source of E. coli every person interacts with comes from the people they live with or interact closely with, explained Dr. Price. Dr. Nakib also noted the frequency of bacteria contact most people already experience. We have more bacterial cells on us than we have human cells. It's all about the balance, she said. Keeping a healthy cohort of good bacteria in the gut can help the body naturally fight off infection-causing bacteria, including E. coli, she said.
I truly believe that the answer is working on regulating the balance of good bacteria to bad, rather than trying to eliminate the bad bacteria, Dr. Nikib said. She recommends eating fermented foods such as yogurt, kombucha, kimchi, and sauerkraut to build up the good microbes in your gut. Antibiotics are the standard course of treatment for UTIs, though drinking a lot of water or taking cranberry supplements can help flush out the bacteria that cause the infections. Dr. Nakib added, "Cranberry supplements that have high amounts of a flavonoid called proanthocyanidins or PACs may prevent the fingers of the E. coli bacteria from attaching to cells in the body, but this evidence is still being debated," said Dr. Nakib. Regardless, it can be used for prevention, but not typically treatment. If your body can't fight the bacteria in the bladder, then it can get out of hand and potentially cause more serious kidney infection or even blood infection and sepsis. She said. Up next, fewer doctors are choosing to go into emergency medicine. Hundreds of unfilled residency spots in emergency medicine are telling us that critical care is in trouble. By Janice Blanchard. It's an opinion piece from Scientific American. Picture yourself in the emergency department in desperate need of acute care. If you are lucky, you quickly check in with a triage nurse who takes your vitals and registers your complaint before sending you back to the lobby. Hours pass, and it's likely you still have not been treated. You are surrounded by other sick people, some with contagious diseases. As the clock ticks. Many people leave, taking a risk to manage their illness on their own. Finally, someone takes you to the treatment area, but it's only to wait again, surrounded by what seems to be utter chaos, before eventually, sometimes hours later, a harried doctor comes to see you. Now, picture yourself on the other side. You are an emergency physician, nurse, or one of the countless other providers who contribute to this critical care. You want desperately to see the patient who has been waiting for hours, but the department is short-staffed because of widespread nursing shortages, projected to create 450,000 open positions by 2025. Your ED is full of people boarding or who need to be admitted to the hospital, but are stuck. There are not enough beds available to transfer that person out of the emergency department. This leaves less space to see or treat the now growing line of people in the waiting room. People lash out at you out of frustration over their long waits. Your department is gridlocked because you can't move people out or to get things done because there are not enough people. You feel powerless, exhausted, and even grief-stricken. By now, thanks to COVID, many people are aware of the challenges of working in an emergency department. But many of these problems existed before the pandemic, and it looks like things are getting worse. Recently, on the largest match day in history, when about forty thousand medical students all over the country learned where they would do their next years of training after an often ultra-competitive process for a limited number of spots. Hundreds of emergency medicine residency positions went unfilled. In two years, the number of applications for usually competitive emergency medicine residencies has dropped by 26 percent, leaving 555 spots open this year. Emergency medicine physicians and the nurses who work with us are suffering from burnout, depression, and deep moral injury more than ever before. When people come to us, some on the worst day of their lives, we cannot take care of them in the way that we have been trained to do. 
Match Day tells us that medical students are realizing this. We have long known emergency departments are broken. We need our administrators to acknowledge this, to listen to us, and to rebuild our environments so that we can treat people quickly, fix what's wrong, and when called to, save their lives. When I chose this specialty 30 years ago, I knew that the emergency department would be a high-volume, high-stress environment. I knew that I would face uncertainty at times, but I loved that the emergency care was supposed to be a great equalizer, a safety net where we treat you regardless of your race, creed, gender, or ability to pay. I have loved that it's an exciting field of medicine. At any moment, anyone and anything can walk in, whether a 23-year-old gunshot victim or a 60-year-old patient in cardiac arrest. And I'd have to use everything I'd ever learned in medical school, plus some, to try and help them. I have helped some of our most vulnerable people get the care that they could not get elsewhere. But lately, my love has dampened. In some parts of the U.S., particularly in rural areas and states without Medicaid expansion to cover uninsured people, my colleagues have to send some out after their emergency visits without viable options for follow-up. This affects their health outcomes. The uncertainty of having to think on our feet that initially fueled our adrenaline has morphed into an uncertainty of staffing and resources that now fuels our anxieties. When we deal with these extraneous things, instead of providing optimal and sound clinical care, it transforms that idealistic vision we had as young doctors into a dark and unpleasant one. It creates moral distress, then moral injury. It burns us out, which makes us prone to medical errors, racial bias, depression, and career changes. When healthcare providers have poor relationships with leadership, do not feel supported by their organization, believe that they are being treated unfairly, or are unable to communicate grievances, this makes moral injury and burnout worse. To that end, hospital administrators must make our work environments better. The people who run our hospitals have to involve us in figuring out solutions because we know how our department works better than anyone. Beyond the emergency department, clinicians often reserve inpatient hospital beds for people who are having non-emergency procedures, plan surgeries for people who are ill but don't need the emergency department. Our administrators can spread out these planned admissions and their subsequent discharges over the whole week, including evening hours and weekends, to decrease the bottlenecks that lead to high hospital occupancy rates and boarding. A fully functioning emergency department requires more than just doctors. Hospitals have to reinvest profits and devote a critical part of their budget to hire more nurses and ancillary staff. We need nurse-to-patient ratios that promote quality care rather than the bare minimums we often have. They have to make emergency care better paying and safer for nurses. Otherwise, they leave, and then doctors cannot do our jobs as effectively. Our hospital leaderships need to explore temporary ways to manage staffing shortages and to ease physician workloads, including scribes and simplified electronic medical record systems. They can work with paramedics to bridge some of our growing nursing shortage, as paramedic and nursing skills have some overlaps. We can more widely adopt telemedicine in triage to conduct medical screening exams to reduce patient wait times and free up providers. However, no one solution will work alone. It has to be a dedicated effort on multiple fronts. The day after Match Day marked another milestone: the one-year anniversary of the Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, 
named after our emergency medicine colleague who committed suicide in the pandemic, which aims to eliminate the stigma of mental health care among medical professionals. While the match day shortfall may not be apparent in emergency departments right away, and some people predict a potential oversupply of emergency physicians by 2030, if this year's match number plunge continues, we will eventually face a shortage. Then many more of us will leave burned out. This leaves us as a society with an important and difficult question. How will we survive if you go into an emergency department and there are no doctors or nurses left to care for you? This is an opinion and analysis article, and the views expressed by the author or authors are not necessarily those of Scientific American. Up next, new phone app may help identify stroke symptoms in real time and get help quickly. By Matthew Wilson from Nice News. Strokes are one of the leading causes of severe long-term disability and death in the United States. Time is a crucial factor, with speed of care often meaning the difference between life and death. So what if facial video technology could detect signs of a stroke in real time and get someone help as quickly as possible? While it may sound a bit like science fiction, researchers in Bulgaria have created just that. Meet Fast AI, the smartphone app that could potentially be a lifesaver for those who are at risk of stroke. According to a press release from the American Heart Association, researchers were slated to present early research on the app at the 2023 American Stroke Association's International Stroke Conference, which was held in February. Owned by Neuronics Medical, Fast AI uses machine learning algorithms to detect early stroke symptoms, such as changes to speech patterns, facial drooping, and weakness in the arm in real time, prompting the individual to call emergency services. For facial recognition, the app examines 68 landmark points to make its assessment. Meanwhile, the app uses sensors to record arm movement and vocal records to check for changes in the user's speech. Researchers put Fast AI to the test by studying nearly 270 patients diagnosed with an acute stroke within 72 hours of hospital admission. The study, conducted at four stroke centers in Bulgaria over a year period, allowed neurologists to use the app to test the patient's symptoms. Then they compared the app's results with their own clinical impressions. The results proved to be promising. In almost 100% of the patients, fast AI detected facial asymmetry, and in more than two-thirds of the patients, it identified arm weakness. While speech pattern recognition still needs to be further tested and validated, researchers remain optimistic. Based on preliminary analyses, the app may be able to detect slurred speech as well. The app takes its name from the American Stroke Association's FAST Warning Signs acronym. F stands for facial drooping, A for arm weakness, S for speech difficulty, and T for time to call emergency responders. That last letter is especially important because on average, 1.9 million neurons die every minute during a stroke. Administering medication quickly is also vital. Previous research has shown that stroke patients who received clot-busting medication within 90 minutes after first showing symptoms were around three times more likely to recover with little or no disability in comparison to those who received medication after the 1.5-hour window. 
Many stroke patients don't make it to the hospital in time for clot-busting treatment, which is one reason why it is vital to recognize stroke symptoms and call 911 right away, study author Radoslav Rachev said in a statement. These early results confirm the app reliably identified acute stroke symptoms as accurately as a neurologist, and they will help to improve the app's accuracy in detecting signs and symptoms of a stroke. The app is still being developed and is not yet available to the public, but researchers are hopeful that it could be used to prevent stroke-related deaths in the near future. And that report again is from NiceNews.com. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.